our work carries values to the audience. You know, while a lawyer or an accountant or a plumber or, uh, you know, anyone that is in business has certain um, ethical obligations they need to consider, in our case, uh, the content has ethical implications. And that's a, a whole other layer of looking at what content are you um, accountable for? Are you, are you happy with the content you're helping make possible? Welcome back to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening to our little podcast at Cannes. If you enjoy it, please subscribe and leave us a good review and share it with your friends and your family and your neighbors, cousins, nephews, dentist. Our guest today is the Assistant Executive Director of the WGA West and former chairperson of the Act One Board, Charles Slocum. Chuck Slocum, as I call him, is an Assistant Executive Director at the Writers Guild of America West and previously worked at Paramount, NBC, and ABC. He has a BA from the Newhouse School at Syracuse University, an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and both an MA and THM in theology and film from Fuller Seminary. In our conversation, Chuck and I cover the WGA, its recent dispute with agencies, ethics in Hollywood, and the recent shift with Act One becoming a part of Master Media International. We cover a lot, but I think this conversation will be especially helpful for anyone wanting to know what the Writers Guild of America does and how it helps screenwriters. I hope you enjoy. Chuck Slocum, thank you so much for joining me today. It's good to see you, man. I'm happy to be here, Jimmy. I want to talk to you about some uh, different topics uh, today, uh, just for, um, for people who maybe don't know you very well, which I know most people know Chuck. You're just a lovable Chuck Slocum. Everybody knows you, Chuck. No, but for for those that don't, um, you have been the chairman of the um, of Act One for uh, chairman of the board of Act One for uh, how many years? Uh, for well, most of its twenty year, twenty plus year history. Uh, there were a couple of years in the middle where I was on the board, and Barbara Nicolosi, our founder, was actually the chair for a while. Um, but I've either been on the board or the chair of the board for uh, um, all of Act One's uh, existence independent of Hollywood Press. Um, for the first little bit of time, we were part of Hollywood Presbyterian Church and didn't have a board. And so I was on the faculty for that, for that period of time as well. But ever since we had a board, I've been either on it or chair of it. And it's been a wonderful ministry to be a part of, very fulfilling and rewarding um, uh, set of students and faculty. And I've been very, very happy and very blessed to be able to be part of it. And of course you, uh, have been chairman, uh, during my tenure here. And, uh, we've been friends for a really long time back since the beginning. Um, and, uh, you, uh, are now have been a part of this new transition. So we are in the midst of celebrating, now this new transition uh, that Act One is now a part of Master Media International, uh, which we've recently um, announced to everyone, something we're really excited about. You've been a part of, uh, you and the entire board have been a part of helping me with getting all that ready. And this is exciting time for Act One. This, this is, uh, this is uh, kind of um, 
a great launch into, you know, we had our first 20 years and this is kind of a great launch into the next 20 years. Yeah, I agree completely. This is an exciting time. Um, as a board, we have been uh, trying to figure out the future for Act One. We're uh, stable and we've always been able to uh, pay our bills and uh, run our programs, but we didn't have quite the heft to really grow. It's been hard to uh, launch new things and to look for, uh, to, to fulfill new ministry opportunities. And, and what we realized is, is that our existing programs are just not quite big enough to support the resources necessary to grow. We have enough resources to do what we do, um, but growing beyond our, our current scope um, to fulfill some of the mission opportunities that we see uh, has been hard. And uh, as we thought about it and looked at what, we'd ha- what we might have to try to build, um, it became clear that um, what Master Media does and provides um, very much fills those gaps in our capabilities. And, um, you know, Master Media has said that we seem to fill gaps that they have and serve their long-term goals of, uh, their, for their expansion. And it just became clear that ministry together uh, was, was stronger than ministry apart. And uh, through analysis, but also, of course, prayer, um, all the, the leadership of the two groups just saw in each other exactly what uh, we each needed and um, very much felt God's lead that working together would be um, the strongest way forward. Absolutely. I, I've been really impressed with um, Dan Rupel's leadership and um, the members of the Master Media Board, and they have worked um, so graciously with us. And uh, it's been wonderful just, um, you know, this has been about, about a two-year process, wouldn't you say? And we've spent lots of time in prayer and conversation and uh, going back and forth on a lot of different things. And um, it definitely seems as though God has been leading us to this point. And like you said, it, 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 the, it's the right partnership at the right time. And we're really excited about this opportunity. And there's a lot of great, exciting things coming down the pike and um, opportunities that Master Media and their relationships uh, provide for Act One. And uh, so a lot of really great, exciting things coming. You work for the Writers Guild of America West. Can you explain what you do for them? And, and you, because you originally start, if I remember correctly, did you originally start at the Guild as, uh, as the publisher of, or editor of the magazine? No, I didn't start there as that, but I did do that along the way for a while. Um, I started doing what is still my central, probably my central duties, uh, which is that I uh, advise the Guild about strategy and especially about strategy in the entertainment industry so that we understand what the studios and networks are doing and how, what their business looks like and how their business is changing so that we can make sure that writers get paid well and appropriately. And um, I have a business degree and I started out at ABC Network uh, doing Nielsen ratings analysis and I worked at Paramount in finance. And then the Guild was looking for someone to advise them about entertainment industry strategy. And I found out about it and it seemed like it was a good match at the time for me and them. And uh, now, you know, 33 years later, it's still a good match. 
I, I have taken 30, on, 30, 30. So 33 years you've been at the guild. Yeah. 33 years. That, that wow. would be 33 years in April of 2021. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I, I think I, I can translate the strategy of the industry into terms that apply to writers and how they work and how they get paid. And uh, I, I've added a lot of management responsibility over the years. Um, as you said, I was publisher for a while. I currently supervise the uh, residuals department, the membership department, the diversity department, um, and um, a couple other, couple other uh, IT department, a couple other things. Over the years, I've done other things. Um, I renovated our Writers Guild Theater twice <laughs> and uh, spent a year buying uh, three new elevators for our building. Uh, and so I've done so, a lot of different things at the Guild, but at the core of it is always our negotiation and our enforcement. And um, so that always takes us back to, you know, how are the companies paid and what does that mean for how writers should be paid? And um, it's fulfilling work. I feel like I'm getting writers money every day uh, or better, better working conditions. And uh, so it's been a great job and uh, they've been good to me. And I, I hope I've done good service for them over the many years. Um, and uh, I didn't even, I didn't expect to ever go work for a Guild. I, I kind of thought of the Guild as something that, you know, existed out there in the industry, but I didn't really know much about it until I went there. And I thought I'd be at the Guild for a year. Um, you know, we, I came in to help them with the 1988 uh, negotiation. And I thought, okay, I'll go do this for a year and then I'll see what I want to go do. And um, I ended up staying. For 33 years. That's impressive. It's actually, you know, you don't hear that actually a lot out here. So that's No, very... it's, it's somewhat rare. Are you from uh, Los Angeles originally? No, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I was raised in the in the Methodist Church, and went to Syracuse University undergrad. I just kind of stumbled into that in in their television and radio program. I, you know, I the guidance department said, look up what you want to study and see where you go to study it. And you know, they didn't pay a whole lot of attention to my future. Um, and so I looked it up, and I found out you could study television of all things. Who knew? And uh, so anyway, I applied. I got in, and and. Studying television was um, completely different than whatever I thought it would be, but as it turned out, I really liked it. And uh, I, I enjoyed the business aspects of TV. And I also enjoyed considering the sort of the social impact of television. Just when I was studying uh, television, a young teenager named Ronnie Zamora had killed an elderly neighbor of his in Florida. And his defense, was that television made him do it. That violence on TV uh, had desensitized him to violence and caused him to use an excessive amount of force resulting in the death of his neighbor. I forget if he was, I forget what mischief he was up to in the apartment, but it resulted in her death. Anyway, that was his defense. It didn't work, he was convicted, but it raised for me at that time when I was an undergrad, the, um, question of the social role of television and what is it? Um, there was a lot of attention on the effects of TV violence on kids at the time. And there always, you know, has been consistently since then too. Anyway, um, I, when it came time for a career, I found opportunities on the business side of the industry and um, started out in New York and they moved me to LA as it happened, um, a rare opportunity. And 
uh, one I took advantage of and moved out to, out to LA. Um, and, uh, but it was all along the business direction. I've got an MBA later. I had the other jobs I mentioned. And um, it scratched the itch of the business side of the industry, but it never really did come back to the social significance of television and film. And um, uh, that coincided also uh, with sort of the rise of my faith. I very much um, came into my own faith in, in college and after college. Uh, as I said, I was raised in the church, but I kind of took it as just a part of life. I didn't really, I didn't have a personal faith. I didn't have a commitment to my faith that I would, that I would say that I had decided to pursue or commit to until after college, a couple of events, you know, caused me to have that um, commitment develop. And so then I began to, to look at the interest I had in the social significance of film and TV through uh, the lens of my faith. And I began to wonder, what does it mean um, to be a Christian in film and television? And um, I looked around, this was uh, probably the late 80s, maybe even the early 90s. And there were not a whole lot of resources. There were ministries out here in Hollywood. Um, and I got involved in those. And when I wanted to look at it in a more rigorous way, uh, I looked around. There weren't really resources on it. I decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to go to seminary and figure it out. Um, and so I did. I enrolled at Fuller Seminary. Happily, it's conveniently located here in Pasadena. And it was the uh, perfect place to um, do this exploration both because it's a multi-denominational seminary. <clears throat> and so you're not limited to sort of a, an existing body of scholarship that um, is sort of uh, committed to one point of view within Christianity. Um, it's it's um, uh, open to be all sorts of perspectives and thus is very able to uh, look at something as, as um, different as uh, a theology of film. And in fact, uh, just as I was seeking out my own education in this, uh, the folks at Fuller were also adopting that as an agenda of their own. And I was there for a few years before I knew anything about it, but they were developing the Brem Center and their curriculum in film and television and theology of film and television out there. And so midway through my program out there, um, I was able to switch into the new degree programs they just created and found all these courses that I you know, just wanted to take and um, found a lot of like-minded people out there. And it really became uh, a place where I could uh, develop my thought and uh, begin to have a theology of film and television that I, um, that I believe in, that I think is consistent with how I read the Bible. Um, not too many years after that uh, was when Act One started. And uh, so, um, you know, Barbara uh, wanted me to come talk to the Act One students uh, about the Guild and uh, what it's like to have a career in writing and that kind of thing. And I said, I'll do that if you also let me teach a class on the theology of film. <laughs> so um, anyway, <laughs> she, uh, she agreed to that. And I started teaching both of those two things. And then my MBA skills became helpful more on an organizational level, as I said, and when we spun off from Hollywood Press, I, I was, I was uh, involved in helping do that spin off and whatnot. But uh, my heart really has been as a, a faculty member um, for Act One, and I've enjoyed uh, teaching. I, 
I'm happy to talk about the Guild. I'm happy to talk about a career uh, in writing uh, or in producing since then, since the beginning. And I'm also um, happy to talk about a theology of film. What, what has been wonderful to see is that um, throughout the church, people have become much more interested in and open to and thinking about um, Christians in culture and Christians in entertainment and Christians specifically in the creative roles in film and TV. And uh, so now, uh, unlike when we started out, there are there's just an, an, an unending list of Christian professionals who can teach for Act One um, and who are thoughtful about it, uh, and also theological thinkers uh, who are able to think through all the theological questions. So it's been wonderful to see that the faculty develop, uh, our leadership develop, and uh, it's just been a wonderful ministry experience for me um, that has, has for now 20 years paralleled my professional career. That's great, Chuck. And I completely echo that. I, I always enjoy when you come in and, and uh, oftentimes we have you talk about um, ethics, business ethics, kingdom ethics, and uh, the paradox. And I don't think that that's, I don't think we discuss that enough. And I, that's why it's always good to, to talk about that. And there is a paradox as being a faithful, committed follower of Christ in a business that oftentimes encourages you to not have integrity. It, it encourages you to look out for number one, not necessarily for other people. And I mean, clearly we've seen the consequences of that. Uh, over the past couple of years in the industry with things like the Me Too movement and and so on and seeing the, for lack of a better term, the depravity that the way many people have chosen to work, many people, you know, the, the way they've chosen to treat other people uh, in this business. And it's always been justified by success and talent has always been elevated above character in this business. I think talent has always been elevated uh, above character in probably every business, but <laughs> since we're talking about the industry, I'm just curious if you could, from your perspective, what is it that, because I, my, my argument is this is an area that we have failed as, as followers of Christ in this business. We haven't done a better job being different and being distinctive in the way we um, act and the way we treat one another. Um, just curious about your thoughts about that. Yeah, I well, I agree completely uh, that talent is elevated over character uh, and ought not be. Um, you know, I, I mean, I tend to think of these issues in, in two categories. One is uh, professional ethics. Um, and using our Christian values as the base for deciding on what's ethical or not in the in the workplace, and um, you know that's that's a topic that um, is you know is explored in the context of many different industries, and in some ways, you can look at um, standard business ethics and Christian ethics for business uh, and apply them to our industry. Um, you know, we have a few quirks and, and, and um, specific situations. 
um, that are a little different because we have things like, um, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings a lot more maybe than other some other industries and uh, situations where people can be vulnerable, like with uh, intimate scenes being filmed and um, the creative requirement of the project requires some intimacy and that can be exploited um, and people can be mistreated in that. Uh, but, it, you know, there are a lot of resources for that and we just need to adapt those to our industry. To me, one of the things that is less common and is shared with a few other uh, industries or careers, um, but is um, present in our film and television uh, context um, very prominently, is the fact that our work carries values to the audience. And so, you know, while a lawyer or an accountant or a plumber or, uh, you know, anyone that is in business has certain um, ethical obligations they need to consider. In our case, uh, the content has ethical implications. And that's a, a whole other layer of looking at what content are you um, accountable for? Are you, are you happy with the content you're helping make possible? Even if you're just on the crew, you know, should you work on a film that you disagree with morally? Um, and it can be very hard to, to know what to do in those situations. And it can also be hard because, you know, you could commit to a project based on one script and then one rewrite later, suddenly you're midway through production and you don't agree with the morality of this script anymore. And yet it's pretty harsh, perhaps unethical to quit a production in the middle, particularly if you're a key person, um, to quit a project in the middle of production. I mean, it's certainly uh, almost unthinkable for a performer right, to quit a movie or a TV show mid-project uh, because you're on the screen and suddenly your absence creates a major problem for the production. Um, it's a little more, a little easier if you're, you know, on the crew or, you know, even if you're the writer, um, you know, maybe even the director or producer, but it's, it's hard to leave the project. So it creates a gray zone and you have to figure out your name is going to be on it. You know, in the case of a performer, your face is going to be on the screen. And then here's this story that you now don't agree with. Um, and uh, so anyway, there are a lot of professional ethical situations that we need to think through. Um, I think that the accountability to the extent that you have power in this situation or you're writing it or you're directing it or producing it, um, that the, the accountability is for both the depictions on the screen which is uh, what draws the most attention publicly. Usually something's on the screen and somebody objects to it. Uh, but also you're, you're accountable for the, the point of the story, the meaning of the story, the moral of the story. What's the, what's the value communicated by the story narratively? And I think that we as Christians are also accountable for that. Um, and we have to think about it on both levels. We can't let the discussion only focus on the depictions. Um, but you can't justify all depictions just based on stories. Sometimes you have to also limit what is depicted and tell the story a different way. Um, and, uh, and then there are the, you know, the, uh, the uh, middle ground of professional ethics that are important and somewhat distinct, like what experience are you going to put an actor through in a story, a film or TV show that you're producing or writing or directing? Um, and, uh, and then all the traditional ones of treating people well, 
And as you say, our industry doesn't even get those right usually. You right. Know, well, no, I wouldn't say usually. Often our our industry, there are times where people are not treated well. Yeah. And so um, you have to watch out not conforming to the ways of the world in that respect too. On top of all these much more idiosyncratic um, moral questions. And so I think that, you know, ethics is just, you know, theology applied uh, to life. And so there's a direct line from what we think theologically uh, to how we, how we carry out our lives and careers um, in Hollywood. You know, the, the big picture goal for me of Act One and Master Media um, and the whole, Christ, the whole church in Hollywood is to populate Hollywood with Christians. Um, and uh, sometimes that means Christian films, what we would call Christian films or Christian programs. Um, but it always means uh, our faith be impacting our uh, work. And so in the workplace, in how you relate to others, in the stories that you tell, how is your work going to be different because you're a Christian? And to me, that's where uh, the rubber meets the road in terms of uh, our ministry and the challenge to the church out here in Hollywood. How is your work going to be different because you're Christian? Um, and uh, it's rarely a simple answer. No, you're, it's rarely a simple answer. It's almost always not a simple answer. And the, the distinction, I think, comes in our choices. I think some of the, some of the frustration that people experience is when, is when given given the the responsibility and the opportunity to make those choices uh, is when it sometimes feels like there are Christians who don't consider their faith or don't consider the theology applied, if you will, uh, the ethics of the situation when they make those choices. And so it's almost as if, why do we even want people at that level if once they get to that level, they're not considering they're not considering um, the distinctions between us and everyone else, or at least what should be the distinction between us and, and everyone else. We, we should be thinking differently about these things. We should be thinking differently about the power dynamics. We should be thinking differently about uh, casting. We should be thinking differently about the way we treat crew members. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And, and it, it begs the question, why for you have there been tools i mean other than obviously scripture itself have there been tools and resources that you would recommend to people um to to say look these are these are things that you could use to help you think um think differently about your christian dis distinctiveness in the industry yeah yeah well yes i i think that um you know you're right the industry is not waiting for us to make our moral decision about uh, a project or how to work. And so uh, they're not going to say, okay, you're, you're all right with this morally, right? <laughs> no. They're not going to ask that question. So we have to keep that front of mind and, and make sure that we are considering all of that. Um, you know, I think that uh, every Christian in the industry has to be as prepared as um anyone else in any other career to think individually and independently about theology and ethics. Uh, or another way to put it is to what you believe the Bible says. So we have to be students of the Bible, as you say, scripture. 
Um, you know, the Beatitudes are important, but all the stories of the Bible are important in communicating values. You know, we have this idea of a red letter Bible, which has all the words that Jesus spoke in red. And, and you know, when I look at it, I think, well, what, that's not what should be in red. What should be in red are Jesus's actions, what he did and what other people do and what people do in the stories that are offered to us, either as Bible stories of things that were that occurred or in actual parables. Um, what do the people do and what, what values does that communicate that are pleasing to God? And um, if you can develop a, um, a personal theology of virtue, a, a personal sense of what is right and wrong, all starting with the golden rule of doing unto others what you would have them do unto you and going from there to be more specific, always put yourself in the other person's um, shoes and see what you think uh, you would want to be done to you um, and use that kind of, of um, framework for deciding. Um, I think that's vitally important. There are gonna be times when you're the only Christian in the room, when you're the only one making a moral judgment about how long the shooting day is gonna be or what scenes are gonna be in a movie or how they're gonna be shot or what experience the performer is gonna have or um, you know what, how, how anybody's gonna be treated financially. And so you need to bring that to uh, your career and uh, be prepared. So that, that, as I said, means studying the Bible it means uh, small groups. You have to have a resource for yourself to be grounded spiritually. Uh, you have to be well-developed spiritually. Um, and you have to be able to uh, find the resources, find the community that can help you think through the issues, whether you have to call somebody you know, right away from your small group um, in a situation or just long-term where you begin to develop the conversation about that. So I encourage small groups, you know, you can find those resources at your local church. I also encourage that um, for industry groups. So if you have a small group, it, it might be helpful to have other people from the industry in the group. Uh, maybe not exclusively, maybe it's good to have some other voices, but if you can have some other people who've faced similar situations, um, that would be good. So that's, a, you know, use the uh, Act One alumni as resources, our faculty as resources. One of the strengths we have is that you know professionals who have done this, um, who are artistically excellent, but also have dealt with being a Christian in the industry are our faculty and uh, they're a resource. So um, anyway, find those resources for yourself in your career uh, and um, uh, you know, be ready to be spiritually independent. You have to be spiritually mature um, to avoid some of the traps of our industry that the industry will just put out there and not even think about. Uh, let's transition over to the conversation I wanted to have with you about uh, the Writers Guild, the kind of the, the tension that has, has, has existed over the past couple of years between the Guild and specifically agencies. You we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I believe it was around 2018 when the guild said, Hey, something's not right here. We need to fix this situation. I wonder if you could, cause I know you, you've been a part of a lot of these negotiations and a lot of these conversations. I wonder if you could take us back to the beginning and kind of walk us through all the way to where we are today. What, uh, what happened? What was the impetus that led to the Writers Guild saying we want all of our 
Um, we want all the writers to drop their representation and uh, we need, we need to create new deals. We need to structure new, uh, a new system here. Uh, can you take us back? Was it, was it 2018 when all this began? Yeah, it was, it was 2018 when we first notified the agencies that we wanted to renegotiate the agreement through which they have the right to represent writers. Um, and um, it had, this had been a problem before. I mean, it's almost a, uh, a standard industry comment that the agent doesn't return my calls. The agent doesn't always put me up for jobs. And, you know, writers had known for a long time that um, there were sometimes conflicting interests um, that watered down the, um, their representation, that uh, um, where other interests came to play, not just their own individual professional interests were being considered. And um, everybody, I think, was doing well enough that that never bubbled up uh, in recent decades. Um, it, actually had, it actually had been an issue. It was, it was an issue in 1962 when MCA had to split the agency from Universal Studios and they chose to be a producer and they dissolved their agency. Um, it was an issue in 1975 when the Guild tried to do exactly what we've done now, which is end packaging fees um, with agencies. Because packaging fees, where an agency receives payment directly from the employer, rather than the 10% commission from talent, uh, means that the agency is being paid by the employer. The agency is aligned with the employer. The interest of the agency comes from connection and pleasing the employer, not the client. And this idea that, that agencies work for 10% of what their clients earn um, applied in um, you know, less than half of cases of clients uh, because clients on a packaged show didn't pay the 10%. They, the agency got the packaging fee. So uh, this had been a problem. I think that, you know, as in TV in particular, as the season orders became shorter, as we've seen over the last uh, seven or eight years, uh, where a 10 to 13 episode order is an annual order for a show rather than 22, uh, I think TV writers felt that that resulted in them being paid less and the agents didn't solve it. And so that's when writers came to the guild and said, you know, this is a problem I'm having. My agents is not solving it. And um, it was because, you know, if, if those 10 other episodes go to a different writer, um, the agency still got a packaging fee on 22 episodes, but the one writer only got paid for 10 of those. And so there was no incentive on the part of the agents to um, up the fee for the writer to compensate because the 10 episodes still took the writer's whole year uh, of work. It was very hard. It's very hard to piece together a, a, a year of work on more than one series. Yeah. Uh, even it, in, it, it even was in 10 episodes. It was almost worse because it would be like maybe one month less. Yeah. And so it was like this awkward, instead of having nine months of work and maybe three months off, it would be eight months of work and four. It was like this weird. <laughs> yeah. And you can't, you couldn't put, you couldn't fill the other three or four months yeah. with other work. And so you right. end up still being off for, so still took a whole year because the, the work did expand, you know, the weeks per episode expanded to take the time available. Uh, but writers get paid by the episode. Typically, I think it's better if they got paid by the week, but they're paid by the episode. And so they got 10 episode fees instead of 20. Well, that's, you're making half what you made prior year. Uh, so anyway, writers came to us and said, this is a problem. And uh, it was clear that packaging fee structure was, um, was part of it. And we realized that between packaging fees and 
by then agencies were starting to actually be producers, um, that that was a problem. And writers said to us, we got to fix it. And uh, so, you know, we, we, we did. And, um, you know, it took two years. But throughout that whole time, we've been negotiating with different agencies and, you know, one by one, they've come on board. But it was um, it was pretty it was pretty earth shattering, wouldn't you say? I mean, it, it really it really did reshape a lot of things. And because essentially the guild was saying, like, no more like you yep. you drew a line in the sand that now now agencies and studios and producers, everyone had to everyone had to react. Everyone had to respond. Everyone had to choose a side. And um, there was a lot of unhappy people with the guild at first, even, even, even some of your own, right? Yeah. Even, even some members um, were, were not bothered by agents earning uh, what I would call would be an outsized uh, return for their work uh, or having a conflicted interest. Um and uh, but you know the community of writers as a whole uh, understood the problem and supported the campaign. Uh, you know, you say you say the guild, um, the guild as an institution doesn't do anything that its members doesn't want it to do. So you know, I would almost replace the words the guild with the community of writers. The community of writers decided that. Uh, they didn't want their agents to get packaging fees, that they wanted unconflicted representation and that um, agents ought to earn 10% of what their clients earn. And so um, to explain the actual, the mechanics of it, mm-hmm. the, when you guys came out, when the, when, when the union came out with the statement, um, right, that it was, it had not yet been voted on by the members, but it was like your executive committee that represents them. Is that right? Well, the members, I mean, the members voted on it when they, when, you know, they fired all their agents. Um, right. But didn't that come, but that came like this, the yeah, yeah, that, statement that, came that, first, right? Yes. But, but we knew that the writers supported it. So they, they, they had expressed themselves enough that we knew that the, the vast majority of writers uh, supported the campaign, supported and, the and, goal. And so, just for just for an understanding though, though just for people who, um, the the Writers Guild of America has a is it called an executive committee? Is that well, we yeah we have a, I guess our board of directors. There was a negotiating committee for this particular okay. purpose. There's a the board of directors of the Writers Guild East and West. There's a separate board in New York, um, and they act collectively essentially. And um, in, in know, other words, it's not just one guy sitting in a cigar smoke filled room. Just you know, saying I want to do this, I want to do no, that. No, not right? at all. Yeah. It's the it's yeah. the opposite of that. I mean, you know, the basically uh, legally, the guild is the exclusive bargaining representative of writers under labor law, and as a result, we uh, control all that bargaining. And so, agents can only represent writers to the extent that we permit it, because it's a part of our mandate to represent writers, right, and right. we have for many many years allowed individual representation by agents, but within the terms that we uh, agree to. And um, so, you know, when writers came to us, we actually did a survey at one point, and it became very clear that writers were bothered by this conflict conflict of interest uh, on the part of agents of packaging fees and producing. 
And so we had, we had a good read on a pretty broad group of the membership and what their feedback was. Um, the board of both guilds took that up and agreed that we should do this action. And then it was expressed, the will of the membership was expressed when it came time to fire their agents and say, look, the representation agreement is now terminated and you can't represent writers anymore. And all the writers filed their individual um, papers to terminate their representation agreement with their agency. And that was when, you know, 99% of writers fired their agents. Is the other the other one percent were you know retired and we couldn't reach them by mail or they didn't return their ballot or, or their paper or whatever. Um, so it's you know virtually unanimous um, action, and that 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 simply expressed the will of the membership that we already knew was there. And so what, as, you know, and then as it turned out, um, you know, we were we we negotiated with agencies throughout the last two years. Um, and uh, you know, modified what our original proposals were, um, but we've reached agreement that writers are happy with, and that you know, agencies are happy with too. I don't know what all you're allowed to share, but you know, like the the latest, uh, the latest big domino to fall was CAA, and um, they've now signed on. Prior, what was the holdout? What was the holdout for the big for the big guys? And I know there's still one domino that hasn't fallen. What were they saying? What, what was the problem they had with what the guild was asking for? Well, I think that it's fair to say that the big agencies um, didn't want to give up the packaging fees and didn't want to give up the ability to produce. And they, I mean, they would argue that it's good for clients because they uh, create opportunities and it saves the client's commission. Um, but, uh, you know, they... Uh, had to eventually understand that writers did not like the conflict of interest. And um, so we have the, we have either the elimination of packaging fees or the limit of 20% ownership in a production entity that's in the agreement. And um, that's, that's, those are the terms on which writers were willing to re-engage agencies. So I, I don't want to speak for the agencies any more than that um, very high level view of it, but um, uh you know, the, the idea is that there's a broadly used concept of fiduciary representation where you have to be able to put the interest of the client above all else and not have it conflict with any self-interest. And it's common in banking, it's common in insurance, it's common in the medical field, it's common to representation in Hollywood. And it's not an unfamiliar concept, but it was... Um, not usually uh, observed in our in our context, and um, all we sought to do was put the fiduciary responsibility of an agent back at front and center. Go, going forward, what are the what are the are there any significant hurdles uh, going you know going forward at this point? No, I mean you know as we record this, um, writers have a lot of agents that are available to represent them. And, um, you know, the, as we speak, the vast majority are of agencies have signed and uh, it's, it's the new normal. There are several religious Christian, <laughs> I'm trying to be careful here, but uh, production companies and large production companies and producers of content that are not signatory. They, they almost braggadociously do not hire 
guild writers. I know, I know there's a place in, in our business that exists, that needs to exist for that. But it also seems a little disheartening and somewhat troubling to me that it tends to be, some of these people tend to be people of faith and, and they tend to make very overt faith-based projects. Any thoughts, any thoughts on that? I mean, I know you've been a part of, a part of these conversations for a while. Well, I, I mean, I guess I would say two things. One is if a, if a Christian producer does not want to hire guild writers, then they're just cutting themselves out of access to some of the more successful writers. Uh, and so that's a, that's a choice that they make. I don't think that's a good creative choice. Um, you know, but you know, they, you know, they have to, they have to look at that choice that they're making. There's nothing the guild requires that they should not already be doing, right? Everything that they, they should be treating people well in a way that exceeds anything the guild requires in our contracts. So um, if I put my Christian hat on and say, you know, what's the guild require? I'm going to say, well, don't, that's the, if, if you're coming up against what the guild requires, then you're right near the edge and you better actually look at what you believe ethically you should be doing because you should be treating somebody either creatively or financially in a way that exceeds whatever the guild is requiring. Um, I think that producers that aspire to the um, highest levels of creative and financial success should have no problem um, working with guild writers and should want to work with guild writers and, um, and should, should be able to sign the guild agreement with no problem. Uh, look, it pains me greatly when even in the guild context, I do see creative uh, Christian companies who end up on our list of grievances. I mean, I look down the list of companies that we have a problem with, that writers have a case with, um, and, you know, it's there's a list of all the names you know who are producers in the industry. Um, and I just hate it when I see a Christian company on there. It's a horrible witness. Um, and um, it just it just shows that that there are cases where Christian producers will treat people in the industry as poorly as non-Christian companies. And, you know, as a Christian, my, my comment to those producers is, what witness are you putting out there? You know, what, what, how, how have you made these decisions to treat people poorly? Um, and uh, there shouldn't, there should, just shouldn't be a case. Just shouldn't be a case. So I, I, I challenge Christian producers to, uh, exceed all the professional standards for um, conduct in the entertainment industry. And um, they should never feel constrained by the entertainment agreements. They should always be doing more and better. What do you say to the writers who say, I can't afford to be in the guild? You know, I, I would rather take that $10,000 pay, you know, that $10,000 job to write that because I can't afford, no one's paying me those, those that larger number that's going to, that's going to allow me to, to, to be in a union. What are your, what, are, what is your response to them? Well, I have two thoughts to that. One is that I understand that there, there's a whole independent, usually independent film sector. There's not much independent television. There's a little bit of streaming, um, but it's really webisodes, not, not real series. 
Um, I, there is an independent film sector, both Christian and non-Christian, that are non-guild. And that, I understand that, and that's fine. And those are people usually at the beginning of their career. Um, and um, it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an area where I understand people need to start there. Um, and usually as someone has success, either a writer or a producer, um, they end up wanting to work with, you know, guild covered writers or for guild signatories. And um, they come under the guild coverage as they appropriately should at that point in their career. Uh, now we have low budget agreements. Uh, and so uh, it's also true that I, almost all productions can be accommodated by a guild contract that both the writer and the producer can live with. Um, and so I, I don't see our contracts as an impediment. Um, if you wanna pay a writer less for a certain project than what the guild requirement is, I think you gotta think about you know, what, what you're paying the writer. And as a writer, I think you gotta think about whether you're selling your creative work too cheaply. You know, are you letting them off the hook? Um, and uh, you know, yes, there's a low budget sector where that happens usually in the beginning of a career where it's not guild. But once um, someone is working steadily, they, 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 they're worth what the guild uh, wants for them. You talked about some of the different responsibilities you, you, you have. One of the things that the, the guild does, obviously, is it, is it defends writers um, who um, maybe have, a, have a, a, a claim against them for uh, plagiarism or, or, or something like that. How does that typically work out for writers, are there a lot of cases where uh, uh, that come to you guys of people claiming that their uh, material has been stolen or compromised in some way that you guys are having to go to bat? And are these um, are these things that are often resolved out of court, or are you guys having to go to court? Like, what's the what's the process in representing uh, representing writers in uh, those cases? Yeah, the, one of the main things we do is enforcing the contract. I mean, we probably have uh, we, we probably have two or three new cases every day, every business day, of some writer not being paid enough. It's not usually theft of material. It's usually being pay, not being paid. Um, occasionally having some rights infringed, but it's usually about being paid by your employer. Um, and uh, now, eighty more than eighty percent of those cases uh, will settle. Um, the ones that don't settle go to litigation. The litigation is almost always uh, in arbitration. We have a private arbitration system with a list of arbitrators in our contract that the companies have agreed to and we've agreed to. And we go through the list and pick an arbitrator and they hear the case, they get experienced in our contract and get to know uh, the types of disputes that we have. So they're not just a, um, uh, uh, someone who's unfamiliar with the entertainment industry. And, um, and we, if we have to, we will arbitrate. Uh, all this is done for guild members um, just for as part of their normal dues. There's no extra fee or anything. Um, and as I said, 80 or maybe even 85%, maybe more uh, of the cases settle um, because it's usually pretty clear what the writer's owed. Um, honestly, most of the cases are difficult because it's where the company is not paying the writer and they may not have the money. It, and so it's not a really a legal issue. It is a collection issue and we have to work out payment plan or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, there are a lot of cases 
Um, I mean, it's relatively small compared to, um, you know, the number of writers working. Um, but there are a couple cases every business day that come up and some settle very quickly. Some take, you know, a while because they do have to go to hearings and briefs and all that. But we have a whole legal staff that does all that. And they work, they work at the whole length of the case. They work it from the initial phone call uh, to gathering all the facts, to trying to settle it, to having to litigate it. Um, and uh, in some cases, the, the problems will bubble up and become an actual proposal in our every three-year negotiation with the studios. If it's really something that isn't clear under the uh, overall um, basic agreement, we'll actually have to negotiate something new in the basic agreement, and we'll do that. So, um, um, yeah, there are a lot of cases. The, there definitely has to be an organization like the Guild uh, that can take all these cases and is not trying to earn a fee for each case. You know, the, pro the problem with paid legal representation per case is that the small cases fall through the cracks because they're not worth the time, they're not worth the money. And we'll take those cases because our, our funding comes from dues overall. Writers collectively throw in their dues. And then we, you know, pursue these cases as well as all the other things the Guild does um, to administrate the uh, contract or provide other activities and uh, benefits to the members. Um, but that way we can, we can address even the small cases where writers owed 500 bucks. We take that case as seriously as if they're owed 500,000. And whereas a lawyer probably wouldn't take the $500 case or the writer would decide it's not worth paying $600 to get $500 and the producer gets away without paying it. Right. That, does, that doesn't happen in our case. We'll go for the 500 bucks, believe me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. How, how many... How many writers does the guild represent? What 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 are the what are the current numbers? Uh, I would say nationwide, it's about fifteen thousand who are members in some way or another of the guild, um, and are out there working to some extent or another. Um, you know, it's probably half that work in a given year. But um, so that's, I want to make sure I want to make sure people hear that, Chuck. So yeah, if to fifteen thousand uh, union um, members and. Um, in the community of writers, but probably around 50% of them work on in, in any given year. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, now, if you look at it over a five or six year period, it's much more like 85% will work. So, um, you know, it's very typical to have- And that's on account of, and, and is that on account of uh, feature films? Well, feature films too, but but TV also. TV does result in a somewhat steadier career because once you're on a show, you're most likely to get picked up if it gets renewed and most shows last, you know, a couple seasons. Um, so television is a little more stable. So the rise of television relative to film um, has made a career a little bit steadier um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's half and, uh, in a given year and it, it is 80 or 90% over a five or seven year period. And some of those who are not working over that period of time are retired because we do have lifetime members who retain their membership for, um, forever, but are sort of truly retired. Um, and, uh, but it is, um, it's a tough career to get into. It's just as hard to get the second job as the first job. Uh, it takes a long time of writing, a lot of experience to write. As I say, 
as I tell the Act One students, it's going to be your fifth or your sixth or your seventh completed script that's going to sell or get you work. And it's going to be just as hard to get the second job as the first job. And so when you're starting out, you got to plan your writing career. Then you got to plan how you're going to make a living because that's your right. career is probably not going to be how you make a living for the first five or seven years. Now, if you can you know, knock out the scripts and learn from them and get it quicker, you can, you can shrink the amount of time it takes to launch a writing career. But you got to get good enough. You know, the good news is a new writer entering the industry competes with every other writer um, for every job. So there's definitely a way in. We let in one new member every day of the year. Uh, actually, these days, probably more like two every day. And um, so you can get in, you can get into this career, but you're, you're competing with every other writer for every other job. And that means you also got to be good enough to compete with every other writer. And that other person has already sold five scripts and probably written 20. And you got to be as good, you got to be good enough to compete with that. So um, yeah, it's a tough career. You have to, you have to love the writing. Uh, you know, actors often talk about the job is auditioning. And when you actually get a job, uh, that's the bonus. And that then you can enjoy it. Uh, you have to look at writing the scripts, um, sometimes, especially in the beginning, just spec scripts on your own. That's the job. And when you finally sell one, that's the bonus. And so you have to love the writing. And you have to put the time in in front of the word processor to get those scripts done. Um, get good enough and, uh, and network and do a lot of other things, but you have to get good enough fundamentally in the, in the writing craft um, in order to, uh, to get into the career and then succeed in it. Uh, you know, our hope obviously at Act One is that we can help people accelerate that a little bit by giving them training um, and so they can be excellent uh, and also give them a bit of a network so they can work their way into connections and getting meetings. Um, and so hopefully we can play a positive role in that for Christians and call Christians to be the most excellent um, so they cannot be ignored creatively and give them some connections so they can find the opportunities. And so um, that's why Act One's been a very um, gratifying ministry to be part of for so long. Your, your, uh, your timetable is uh, a little bit shorter than, than mine. You said five to seven. I tell people 10. Yeah. <laughs> so if they can, if they can, if they can manage it uh, for the first 10 years before they get their first job, then they've got yeah. a good shot. Yeah, but um, it's the, the good news is it's up to them because to me, it's really yeah. five or six or seven completed scripts that they would show other people. And you yeah. can do that. You can do that in three years. Yeah. If you want. you yeah. know, you can't do it much faster than that, but you can do that much work faster. If you really spend those evenings and those weekends writing that script uh, or do it every day when you're off work, um, work around your work hours, uh, you can do it faster, uh, but you have to get good enough. And that does yeah. take time. And the only people who are going to do it faster are maybe people who, who have writing partners, but writing partners, then... writing partners can help. Writing partners is a good option for extroverts who want to be writers. Um, introverts who want to be writers can be great at the writing part. They need to work out the meeting part and all the networking part. That's going to be the harder part. Uh, for extroverts, um, you can turn the more solitary task of writing into uh, a more interactive process by having a writing partner. I think you have to figure out uh, what your personality uh, requires and uh, make yeah. a decision about the writing partners or 
I think in some cases, a producing partner could be helpful um, if it's more about the business stuff. But uh, yeah, you got to figure that out. Uh, it can be a very important part of the process. Uh, on the other hand, in the case of a writing partner, you're splitting all the money. <laughs> Oh, right, right. You're gonna earn less too. You're more so you're more attractive to those to the producer who still is paying the same amount, and he gets two two writers for the price of well, one. Well, that that can be true on a television staff where they have two bodies in the room for right. one. In the case of the in the case of the script part, the writing of the script, um, it's almost irrelevant to the producer because they're getting one script for the same price. They're rarely going to be willing to pay more because it's a team. And so they're, they're getting a script for the price. And if the writer, you know, can produce that with a, with a uh, partner, that's fine. Hopefully that means you can maybe produce more work if you're uh, a, part, uh, a pair of writers working as partners. Um, but I, yeah, you got to figure that out. And that's a choice. Uh, it does have economic and creative um, uh, consequences. Yeah. I didn't ask probably just a really basic question, maybe for some of our listeners, which is, how does one get into the Writers Guild of America? Yeah, we, we'll be there when, when it's time. Basically, you get into the guild when you get a guild covered job. So you get hired, uh, you'll get in. You do not need to already be a guild member to get a guild job. As I said, you compete with every other writer for every job, even before you're a guild member. Uh, what the contract says is that if a, if a guild signatory company hires a writer, that writer must be a member or become a member. So if, you, if you're a non-member, you'll get the job and we're gonna call you up and say, hey, welcome to the guild and you join. And there's no inhibition other than getting the work. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, you can start working right away. And, and in fact, you have to write about two hours of content to get in. So if you sell an hour script, you probably got to sell the second one uh, before you'll join. Uh, depending on there, there are different pieces of work that all count toward membership. But in this, the simplest way to think about it is writing about two hours of content or two episodes of TV to get in uh, the guild. But you work and you get coverage under our contract. Um, if all you do is sell one half hour episode, uh, you're going to get the residual when that repeats, you know, on TV. Um, because it's the work is covered by the guild, even if you never join. You know, now you write the second one, then that's the time to join. Uh, and then there are additional benefits of, of being a member, but basically you're covered under the contract from the get-go. You used to often, uh, when you would speak at Act One, you would talk about uh, the why Act One. And I used to really enjoy hearing how you would talk about the, the, the need for Act One and the the why uh, for act one. Um, we're, we might have some people listening today who maybe are considering taking the act one program perhaps this summer. Um, for you, Chuck Slocum, you've been a part of the act one community for, for years and chairman of the board. Why act one? Well, I guess I would, I would think about it in, 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 in a couple categories. The first thing is that uh, you're going to find Christians who think about the same issues that you do um, and have been doing so for a while and have some resources to help you think through those questions. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to find uh, that many people in your local church who can help you think through some of the issues about being a Christian in film and entertainment. 
and and how to how to work through some of the questions you're going to have. So you're going to find like-minded people um, in the Act One community. Hopefully, we can also uh, do the acceleration that I talked about, which is accelerate your learning curve both creatively and in terms of um, more uh, theologically and ethically um, about how to be a Christian in the entertainment industry because we address it in the curriculum and we have the programs available, the educational programs, um, also the alumni activities, and that will help you learn more quickly some of the things you must learn. Uh, I think that our one of the strengths of our program is that you, as you learn to write, which there are a lot of places where you can learn how to write film and TV, um, you'll be doing it with Christian professionals who have thought about some of the special issues that will come up writing as a Christian. Um, it also then plugs you into our Act One network. Uh, our alumni are one of the strongest resources um, we have. We find that the community of each class of students is very strong and it persists throughout people's career. Uh, and then participation in the wider alumni group also can create new contacts um, and ways of understanding things or learning things or finding contacts um, to get jobs. Um, and, you know, the other thing for people who are outside of LA already that, that, we, that we, we, we did at the very beginning because it was very hard to find um, and it's a little more common now, but I think for some people it's still necessary is that we can demystify LA. We can make it easier to come here. You're gonna come here, you're gonna be part of a Christian community for the program. Um, and uh, we, can, we can just demystify the whole idea of moving to LA. When we started 20 years ago, none of the Christian colleges were having a semester in LA. Even the secular colleges mostly did not have a semester in LA or a couple week summer program in LA. It was very unusual to have that. And so we were able to offer a program where Christian out in the, you know, the heartland um, could come to LA and learn LA, learn how to get around, learn how just what is out here, where to live, just get familiar with it, break the ice on um, it being such a big deal to move to LA by coming out here temporarily. And we, you know, we facilitated it and it made a big difference. Um, so now a lot more of the Christian colleges have some program like that. Um, and uh, so it's not as necessary that sort of demystifying LA is not as pervasively necessary. It's still necessary for some people who don't have the opportunity to take advantage of that kind of program. But, um, you know, I would think of us for people who have been out here, uh, we're a little bit like a grad school for uh, your career as well. So, um, you know, even if you've done one of those seminars, I think while the demystification might not be the value, uh, the value is in the uh, acceleration of your career. Um, so, you know, the why is that life as a Christian is always better in community. And we're the community. Uh, and we, we love that about Act One. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's sort of, the, I think, the core touchstone for um, everything we do is does it serve us as um, our purpose of being the community of Christians in Hollywood, particularly for writers and producers, although uh, we've got a bunch of directors among our numbers too. Um, and, uh, you know, combined with all the local churches out here and the other ministries out here in the industry, um, it's a rich and deep community. And uh, I just love um, the role in that community that Act One can play. Chuck, this has been fantastic. I uh, think that we, I think anyone listening to this is going to come away with a 
um, just a wealth of knowledge and a, a real encouragement uh, to um, keep pushing the boulder up the up the hillside and oh. and um, and know that they don't have to do that alone. And you have been a part of of leading this community and having a voice in this community for a really long time. And you've been a blessing to a lot of people and um, me, me included. So I just want to thank you for today and thank you for all that you've done for, for act one uh, over the years and all you've done for uh, Christians in Hollywood and, uh, and on all you've done for writers at the right through the, through your work at the writers guild. So thank you, my friend. Well, thank you. And, it, you know, it's been a blessing to uh, facilitate in some small way the careers of others and uh, to create some opportunity for community. I look forward to, uh, you know, continuing uh, to participate in the ministry at Master Media. I'm going to be part of their board, Act One. The Act, some of the Act One leaders are going to join the Master Media leadership as well. And so it really is a combination of two great ministries um, that have different strengths. And uh, the combination of those strengths can be can produce even more fruit of uh, the spirit. And uh, so it's been very gratifying for me. And I look forward to uh, more and more of being blessed uh, by being part of this community in the future. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I like to close all of our episodes with praying for my guests. Would you allow me to pray for you today? Thank you, please. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for my friend Chuck, thank you for his friendship. Thank you for his leadership. Thank you for his kindness, his generosity. God, he has been uh, so instrumental in so many people's uh, careers and lives. Uh, he's been such a blessing uh, to so many. And uh, I'm just grateful to you for him. I'm grateful for uh, the way you have used him to uh, help steer and guide uh, Act One over the years and um, uh, just impacted so many um, writers and filmmakers and producers. And uh, thank you for his commitment to you. Uh, thank you for his commitment to uh, the gospel and the work of, the, uh, of your kingdom. And God, we just, uh, I just want to pray a blessing upon him and his life and um, his work. Um, pray that you would continue to use him at the Writers Guild to uh, to serve writers. And um, God, I pray you would continue to uh, just give him opportunities to uh, represent you well uh, in, uh, in our industry. And we love you. And we thank you for all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood. Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. <laughs>